Frank Edwards was the fourth of six children, and he was born in 1860. Uh, his younger brother was my grandfather, so this makes him my great-uncle, and I inherited his diary from my father. All we really know about his story before he ended up on the whaler was written up by my father in the 1980s, so I'm drawing on that in what I'm saying about him. The story was that Frank got into trouble in his 20s by making a disastrous marriage forced on him by the impending birth of an otherwise illegitimate child. I'm quoting my father's words here. He also stole money from the family plumbing business. His father decided that the best way out of his difficulties would be to send him to sea, and so he had him engaged as an ordinary seaman on a ship about to leave the Bristol docks. The next thing we know is that while Frank was drinking in a bar in San Francisco, his drink was spiked and he woke up to find himself on the whaler, the Abraham Barker, which had just left port with a fleet of other whaling vessels on a year's trip to the Arctic. This was late November 1887. This explains his opening words in the diary that he had to commit the first part to memory as he had no chance of getting a book to write in until the Abraham Barker reached Honolulu the following March and I'm supposing that he was not allowed off the ship to get the book himself in case he did not turn up for roll call later. We know nothing more about his life except that he contacted his family from time to time and he handed over the diary to my grandfather, who he arranged to meet on London Bridge at midday on a certain day in 1912. This was also the year when their own father died. And, and this was his final contact with the family, and his end is therefore not known. The excerpts you are about to hear were taken from Frank Edwards's own words while written on the whaler, the Abraham Barker, in 1887. We left San Francisco on the afternoon of November 29th, 1887, in rather rough weather. We had good winds until we reached Maria Island, one of a group of islands belonging to Mexico. At two in the afternoon, we sighted a large whale, after which we had an exciting chase. We lowered five boats, and the boat to which I belonged was close to him on three occasions. During the three hours in which we chased him, he rose eight times. We are now following him up the Arctic with all sail set. Essentially, we're in the Victorian period, and uh, most of the public um, in Europe would not know very much about whales at this time. I'm Mark Simmons. I'm the senior marine scientist for the Humane Society International and I specialise in working on marine mammals, and I'm also a visiting fellow at the University of Bristol. In the, the latter part of the Victorian time, natural history books had started to be distributed, and so there was at least some imaging of whales. 
Um, but for the most part, people would not know them very well. Occasionally, bodies, of course, would wash up, and quite often those would be bloated and distorted. And that also helps explain some of the very poor images uh, that people were seeing uh, of these animals. The only people, I think, who knew them really well during this period uh, were the whalemen themselves, and they, too, were finding it very difficult to get a sense of... Um, the different species and what the animals look like. And that may sound a little bit weird, but we have to allow for the fact these animals are very large. And of course, as they're processing them, as they're bringing them on board, they're bringing them aboard part by part, not as a whole animal. And also, with a whale, once you put the whale on a hard surface, or, or you know, for example, if it's washed up on the shore, it's immediately distorted. So I don't think we had a very good sense of these animals. And we're still in a period where people were thinking about large creatures at, at sea as being monstrous. The whale our boat struck led us such a chase that at last we were not over particular as to whether we caught it or not. When we struck it, he rose its fluke and when it came down it nearly drowned us all and then separated from the school, taking us through the water at a terrific rate. We got our oars in and away he went, the line running out of the boat at a tremendous rate. The whale does not stop down long as it is obliged to come up for air. And directly we feel the line slack, we pull hand over hand on the line until we get up to it. And when we got there, we gave him the benefit of a bomb from a gun we carry for the purpose. The bomb is about one foot long and after entering the whale's side, it explodes and the effect makes it feel anything but comfortable. So there were various products coming from whales at this time, and by far the most important is, is about whale oil. And whale oil um, might be described as coming in two main forms. The, the one is the sort of oil that you get when you render down the fat of the body, but there's also a very high-quality oil that was found in the heads of sperm whales in a particular organ in the head, which is actually to do with their acoustic uh, abilities. It's a lens that sits in the head. But it was very high quality and it was very clear and it was uh, incredibly valuable. So oil was being used to um, illuminate people's houses in much of the first uh, street lighting. And it was also, for the Industrial Revolution, a really important lubricant. Probably the very first popular books, which included the first probably pretty poor illustrations of whales, were being produced on uh, printing presses which were lubricated with whale oil. After the whale oil, then there come other products which are in a way, in a way are better known about, like the, like the baleen. So whalebone or baleen uh, comes from the filter uh, feeding apparatus that hang from the roof of the mouth in the whales, which is like the, the keratin in our fingernails was used by the animals for filtering fish and invertebrates plankton out of the sea when they eat. But this was pretty much like the plastic of its day. So it was malleable to some extent and it was flexible. Famously, it was used in corsets to hold their waists in place. That was the fashion of, of the time. The other thing we, we might want to think about is just the, the sheer value of this. So I compared it to a sort of gold rush at sea and I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, Frank himself gives a value for this. His value for a single whale would probably get you a small house today. Sighted a right whale about half a mile from the ship, but too heavy a sea and headwind to lower for it. 
I may here state that one of the right whales are almost equal in value to that of a bowhead. The right whales were uh, heavily whaled uh, way before we get to Frank's time. And they were the right whale to hunt, not only because they were big and slow, but they were close inshore. And uh, when you stuck things in them to kill them, they floated. So this was all very convenient for the very early whalers. And at that time, they would have been taking meat and, and oil from them. And then later on, the sperm whale really comes into, into focus in the period when, when Frank is active and, and earlier. And they were very valuable because they had a lot of oil in them. Uh, and they had this remarkable clear oil in their heads, uh, known as spermaceti oil, which was very highly valued. And so the richest people at that time, for example, in North America, were probably lighting their homes using spermaceti oil and spermaceti-derived candles. When the whale is killed, a hole is cut in its fluke and a stout line put through and attached to the boat so as to be able to tow it by. A platform is lowered and the whale brought alongside. They have long light poles at the end of which is a spade as sharp as a razor. The jaw is sent on deck first and then the rest of the head. The blubber is then cut and stripped off, mostly in four large pieces called blanket pieces. The head oil is taken first, each of the pieces is boiled down until quite dry, the pieces after being put through a press. It then passes to a large tank to cool and afterwards run into casks coopered up and stowed away in the hold, all ready for market. They expected this whale to yield above 140 barrels of oil and they estimate its value to the owners at about $7,000. This is the first whale caught of the season. In it we found an old harpoon and an unexploded bomb. This whale gave us 126 barrels of oil, but if we had troubled about keeping the tongue and small, it would have been about 140 barrels. They estimate that there is 10 barrels of oil in the tongue of a whale that is this size. He says the value of one whale to the, the owners and operators of the boat would be about $7,000. So I think we can take that up to something like $180,000 now. It just shows you that these boats, when they came home and into port, if they'd been successful, were carrying sort of liquid gold on board for their owners and operators. And it explains how some of the people around this, and I'm afraid I don't think Frank was one of them, became very wealthy. March 18th, 1888. Just as one of the harpooners were about to strike, a whale rose right underneath the boat and pitched him head foremost into the water. He was a man who could not swim. I should say the line entangled around his leg and they hauled him in aboard, only the worse by a wetting. Had the whale kicked in a proper and business-like manner, we should have gone on an excursion without a return ticket. What you can see is... Uh, a history of one whale population after another being decimated uh, to the point where the whalers find it very difficult to actually find them, and so they move on to another species. By the time we come to the 20th century and we've got diesel-driven whale boats, they're able to capture even the biggest and the fastest whales, and they go after the big ones because there's more return for your effort on a big whale than a small whale. And so we see the blue whale uh, captures... Um, 
increase and then they decline when they can't find them and then they move on to the next largest whale which is the fin whale and then they move on to the next largest um, and so forth. And those whales are all very long-lived and slow-breeding animals and so we are still seeing recovery and in some places no recovery uh, now. So we've done damage to the whale populations which in some places will never recover. It was probably the biggest ever removal of biomass, removal of, of living material that the human species has yet managed to achieve. April 27th. Visits from three different ships. One ship here, the Fleetwing, will put back to Alaska to put its captain ashore as he has gone out of his mind. July 22nd. Several canoes came off from different settlements and the captain bought a lot of reindeer meat for us. Rain and fog all night, and the water August full of August 16th, wars. fine day, and all hands on deck as we smoked the ship again on account of the rat. August 17th, cold wet day, nothing August happened. August 24th, snow squalls all day and strong breeze. <coughs> We're now 71 degrees September 21st. Unless our luck soon changes, we shall not get a cent payday after 12 Until months' work. Night and day. We are now out of the Arctic Ocean, and my only wish is never to see or even hear of such a place again. This is my opinion of the Arctic. The existing marketplaces for uh, whale meat are just three countries that are practicing commercial whaling, and that's Japan, Norway, and Iceland. And in those countries, this is typically not a widely eaten meat. It might be eaten by particular communities more than in other places. Um, in Japan, it, it can be quite a high-value uh, product. The Japanese particularly seem to like fin whale meat, and so that has a high price set against it. But the economic realities of this is that even in Japan, it's not something of, of enormous uh, economic value. The average consumption is set at about 40 grams of person across Japan. So that, that's about um, half an apple's worth of whale meat being consumed by everybody. So it's not really economically important as far as we can see. A lot of ongoing whaling is about tradition, the right of people to go ahead and, and kill whales for commerce, and some diversification, of course, within the fishing sphere. So, for example, boats being used for different things, and that's particularly the case in, in Norway. In 1946, the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling was signed, and that established the International Whaling Commission. So the Whaling Commission brought together the few leading whaling countries, and they tried to work out ways to manage the whale stocks, bearing in mind that they were dealing with different species, therefore with somewhat different biology, and this was a great uh, difficulty. And also trying to manage things out on the high seas, because we know now that there was a lot of falsification. Thousands and thousands of whales were not being properly recorded. So when we get to 1982, the Whaling Commission is still failing to manage the whaling stocks and that's when it decides by majority vote put in place a ban on commercial whaling which stands today and that is one of the most important conservation moves ever that, that the human race I think has ever made and from 82 to 86 
the whaling countries are encouraged to clean up their acts and to withdraw from whaling. But the whaling nations also have the ability, as is the case with many international treaties, to take out reservations, objections, if you like, to the moratorium. And so some countries, predictably countries that you might expect, do take out those reservations and are not bound by it. So Norway, for example, still holds that formal objection and can claim that it's legally whaling because of that. Of course, nobody expected countries to hold that kind of reservation to a legal decision for decades and decades, but that's, but that's been the case. So the International Whaling Commission has evolved in recent years into a body which deals with many other issues beyond whaling, and it's become a very important conservation organisation, dealing with things like incidental capture in fishing nets and pollution, and even to some extent climate change. Climate change comes in as a particular concern for whales, particularly those very, very highly migratory whales, which famously go to feed towards the poles at one time of the year, and then they return to warmer waters uh, for breeding. So those animals need to find certain conditions, perhaps most obviously food, at a certain time when they arrive. And so we may have timing issues in that the blooms may not occur around the edge of the ice because the ice is not there or the timing you know, is different. And so the whales are looking for food and can't find it. At the moment, we have a relatively um, well-recovered population of one of the species of right whales in the southern hemisphere seems to be having problems which are best witnessed through the process of strandings. And the animals appear to be in very poor condition so this points towards them not being able to find enough food in the right place at the right time. And I think the main action that we have to take is we have to remove all the other stressors. And there's one more really interesting aspect to this, which is that it's becoming very clear, and, and many more people are now talking about the importance of whales in terms of um, maintaining functioning ecosystems and acting as carbon sinks. So we're used to thinking about the rainforests now as being really important in holding lots of carbon, which is why all the burning that's being on, going on in Brazil and, and neighboring countries has been so terrifying. You know, we're burning this resource, we're turning all this carbon out of the atmosphere. But the whales can be seen in the same way. They can be seen, if you like, as the sort of rainforests of the sea, because they lock carbon away in their bodies. And by killing them, we've been releasing that. So if we had many more, if we could suddenly magic up a lot more whales, we would be able to lock away a lot more carbon. So this is now another reason for conserving them. And alongside the tremendous concerns about climate change have to be the related enormous concerns about the loss of biodiversity. So we need to have... The campaigners understand that they also need to talk about diversity, biodiversity, the loss of animals, the loss of plants, as part of this, as part of this issue. During the afternoon, we sighted two right whales. We lowered the boats and chased them until it was getting dark and we had to give up the chase. For myself, I have no wish to catch any of these interesting creatures.